Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and uh, open up to Genesis chapter 18. And uh, as we step into this, make sure you've got God's word in front of you. Okay. And I say this uh, frequently, but I will continue to say it frequently. Uh, Church family, it does not matter um, what my opinion is. Or what your opinion is, it matters what God's word says. And uh, it is our task corporately to make sure that whatever is taught, whether it be in here or it be in a classroom, that it lines up with what God's word says. And so when we ask you to turn in your Bibles, it is not just for your own edification, but it is also for your responsibility to hold myself, our leaders, and each other accountable to what the words in this great gift say. And obviously, if you are online and you are driving, you get a pass. But, for the rest of you, uh, make sure you are in the text. And if you are using one of the pew Bibles or you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you. It's page 15, okay? If you don't know where this is, we want to make sure that you are there. We have been walking through the book of Genesis for quite a few weeks now, and we're going to continue. So if you didn't know, there's 50 chapters in Genesis And we're going to navigate through all 50 of them. Some weeks we'll cover multiple, but other weeks we're going to sit in some challenging texts because we don't want to miss what God is commanding to us. So before we uh, go further into this, I just want to pause in recognition of the authority of God's word and the authority of him alone to lead us into that which is righteous and true, and just, and good. Let's commit this time to Him for His glory and for our growth. Father, as we approach Your Word, may You change us to be who You have called us to be as Your church. May You open our eyes to see where we have faltered In obedience, may you convict us of sin that we have allowed to remain. And God, may you embolden us for the task that lies before us in a world that continues to move farther and farther from your truth. All of this for your glory and not our own, we pray in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Over and over again, we fall prey to the sinful desires of our flesh. Since the sin of Adam and Eve, we have been prone to choose our own way rather than walk in obedience to God's way. This results in this ongoing cycle of transgression or sin in our own lives and then a recognition of our need for redemption that can only come from God our Father. Now, while we recognize, and I believe that a majority of you here today who hear me say we are prone to walk in our own sinfulness would agree with that statement. We live in a day where we are prone to dismiss the perfect justice of God. This revealing a tendency in ourselves to be double-minded. And you might go, Matt, what in the world do you mean by this? So I'll give you three examples. I want the world around me to do what is right, but I don't want to faithfully follow God's commands. I want the church to be about these things, But I don't want to be invested in the church. I want justice for the oppressed. But when it comes to my own sinful behavior, I want a pass. At the end of all of this, as we navigate through a very challenging section of Genesis, if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to grab hold of this. God's righteous justice far exceeds our fallen judgment. God's righteous justice far exceeds our fallen judgment. Now, when we left off last week, Abraham had just shared a meal uh, shared a meal with the Lord and two angels, these three that appeared to him outside of his tent. And we pick up the narrative in verse 16 of chapter 18. Look there with me. It says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. 
Now, within the text here, it appears that God almost debates whether to communicate with Abraham or not. For the sake of the reader, we can find great hope in this. If we look at verse 16 and 17, here the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And we would question in that, is this God all-knowing? And if so, why would he debate about this? But the reality that I want you to recognize is that this is a gift on a recognition of the mercy of God to reveal due process for our own sake. But recognizing God himself knew exactly what he was going to do. For the sake of the reader, we can find great hope in that God reveals to us exactly what is needed for our own responsibility and benefit. If we look further into this in verse 19, we see the reason behind God revealing what he is about to do to Abraham. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. God has commanded Abraham and given him this responsibility to command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. In sharing what is about to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah that we're going to see in this narrative, God demonstrates his justice and mercy to Abraham in lived out instruction for the task set before him. We see this further affirmed in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example. Everyone say example. Of what, get this, of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, at first glance, as we identified before, we may be prone to question in this God's omniscience. And yet this is the same God who knew Sarah's thoughts when she laughed to herself in verse 12. This is the same God who has foreknown the fulfillment of a promise yet seen by Abraham and Sarah. This is the same God who in his sovereignty created all things He is no doubt all-knowing. And so in this, God reveals His mercy to mankind by reinforcing His divinely perfect judgment. God does not act on a whim. He knows the intricacies of the situation beyond what any of us could. If we look at verse 20 and 21, the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is where, if we're not careful, we go, well... I'm going to take what's called an open theism view of God, which simply states that God is not all-knowing and he kind of figures it out as he goes. That is not the God of the Bible. 
The God of the Bible knows. Turn to your neighbor and say, he knows. Yet in the midst of these pages, what I want you to see is God is so merciful in revealing to us his perfect justice by going, hey, I know you guys are going to question whether what I'm doing is really accurate or true or just. And so I'm going to explain to you, I'm going to go down into the city and I'm going to see if what has been cried out to me is actually legitimate. And then I will know for certain. Trust me when I say God already knew. And it's backed up by him revealing in the verses prior, should I Hide from Abraham what I am about to do. There's no question or debate in God's mind. He knows. God knows. There's another piece in here that we would be prone to miss if we read through this quickly. And that is that he is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed. Look again at verse 20. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Some of you sitting here today have been in positions where you have felt like the one being oppressed. And you may have even taken steps to cry out to the Lord for what is just and what is right. Some of you sitting here or listening to this have experienced horrendous abuse at the hands of another individual. And in the midst of that, in your brokenness, you may have cried out to the Lord, and yet you sit and you go, does he even hear me? The truth from Scripture that we should grab hold of is He is indeed a God who hears. And this was reinforced further back when... Hagar left and he was the God who sees. And right here, just in this brief moment that we've spent in these few verses and in chapter 18, we see the character of God as one who sees, as one who hears, and as the only one who truly knows. This God of the universe has sovereignly revealed himself to us what great mercy is this God's righteous justice far exceeds our fallen judgment now upon discerning what the Lord was about to do Abraham struggles with this reality God revealing to Abraham what's about to happen Abraham is having a hard time with this, and he, in boldness, intercedes before the Lord. Look at verse 23. It says, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will You then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. So that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Verse 24. 
And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, after affirming that for 50 righteous individuals, we see in uh, the rest of chapter 18, Abraham wrestle with, oh man, maybe I way overshot this. I'm sure some of you have experienced this before. If you're selling something and someone goes, how much? And you give them a price. They're like, I'll buy it right now. And you go, ah, man. I should have I should have estimated higher, right? And here, Abraham, same thing happens, only it's the opposite. Where he, for 50, God, for 50 righteous people, will you continue to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And God goes, no, if I find 50, I will not destroy it. And Abraham here, I kind of sense this tension. And he's going, oh, man. Okay, God. Lord, don't get upset. What about 45? And God says, for 45, I won't do it. He goes, oh, man. 40. And you see this pattern over and over again where Abraham goes all the way down to, Lord, if there were 10, if there were just 10 righteous individuals, will you destroy this place? And God says, no. If I find 10 Righteous, I will spare the whole on behalf of the ten. I want you to think about that for a minute. And think about the justice of God, the perfect justice of God who goes, there are t- if there are ten righteous individuals in this place, it is not just for them to receive the same judgment as the whole of the, of the wicked. I will therefore spare the whole for the ten righteous. Wow. Now there's two observations in this. Number one, this reveals the completely depraved state of this city. Because the implication of this is that there are no righteous people in this place. And you might go, well, what is defined as righteous? Well, if we go back to Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then the logical conclusion in scripture is that there are none, there is nobody who believes and walks in obedience to the Lord. Imagine for a moment a whole city. And not even ten righteous individuals. Not even ten seeking to walk in faith. The second observation here is that God demonstrates his perfect justice in affirming his judgment on the wicked and sparing the righteous. Here's the application in this section. We are prone to question the sovereignty of God in his judgments. Brothers and sisters, may I remind you that we see an infinitesimal fraction of the whole, but God sees all. God's righteous justice far exceeds our own fallen judgment. Now, two angels go down to Sodom, and Lot, Abraham's nephew, 
is waiting at the gate or is at the gate. He sees them coming and he invites them into his home. And it's worth noting in this narrative that Lot, though he is living in a nation surrounded by wickedness, he exercises the same hospitality that we see in his uncle Abraham in chapter 18. Or he invites them in and he demands that they share a meal with him. And it's the same pattern. And it takes some convincing for these two angels to actually agree to enter his home. And he feeds them. And then things take a horrible turn. And we see firsthand the depth of Sodom's wickedness revealed. Let's look at chapter 19 starting in verse 4. says, but before they lay down, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. I want you to take note of that for a moment. All the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, it's worth pausing there and stating to you, knowing them in this verse is not, I want to share a cup of coffee. This is very wrong and goes down a path of atrocity that we can't even begin to imagine. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg of you. So Lot is speaking with this mob of people that are demanding that these two angels come out and let uh, uh, just allow us to do whatever we want with these these two men. And Lot says to them, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. Do to them as you please. And. We should be angry when we read this. We'll touch on that in a moment. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow, they're talking about Lot now, came to sojourn and he has become the judge. You can think about that in a mocking sense. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, these are the two angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with him and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Now, when we read a passage of scripture like this, it should notably cause us to sigh. In the face of utter depravity, we should mourn and weep, church family. Two observations here. Number one, in the face of cultural pressure and fear, we are prone to make foolish decisions. We see this in Lot. Lot here elevates his hospitality responsibility over his own familial responsibility. Unacceptable. Lot here 
is prone to sacrifice his own family for the benefit that he would care for his guests in the face of pressure from culture saying, come on, Lot, come on. And in a summarized sense, let us do what we do anyway. Don't stand in our way. Church family, I don't know of a better statement than what you are going to be prone to hear more and more of in the culture around us. Don't stand in our way. Your ways are not the right ways. Get out of here with your own godly ideas about what should be. We don't care about that. Move aside. Let us do what we want to do. And if you and I are not careful, we will be prone to make foolish decisions that are equally as wrong as our cultural counterparts. Your purpose is to rise above this and walk in faithful obedience to the Lord, not fearing because if God is for us, who can stand against us? That you would be bold to stand up against the cultural norms and instead of lot and say, well, all right, I'll do a compromise, you know, do this, but don't do this. We would say, no, you will leave. You will be done. This is wrong in the name of the Lord. I will not stand for this. Don't allow yourself to collapse in the face of cultural pressure. Root into what God has called us to in his word. The second observation here is one that should be so humbling to us. And it's the reality that sin is absolutely blinding. Do you recognize here in verse 11, even when this mob of people seeking to do unspeakable things are struck with physical blindness, they continue to walk towards their own sin. Even in the midst of such a warning that they can't see, they don't care. The wickedness of this people is so rooted into who they are that they continue to pursue it even when struck with physical blindness. This should come, church family, both as a sign to us and a warning. Don't be surprised when the world around presses in with wickedness, but be discerning in that you do not join them in their blind pursuits. Oh, sin is blinding. In the verses following, the pace picks up rapidly. Lot is pressed to get all of his family out, for the judgment of the Lord is coming. The urgency is met with difficulty as Lot attempts to warn his daughter's future husbands, who in verse 14, they laugh at him. It says they seemed to his son, he seemed to his sons and sons-in-law to be jesting. And yet Lot lingers further, bringing swift action from the two angels. Look at verse 15. It says, as the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters, who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife, his two daughters, by the hand of the Lord, being merciful to him. If you mark in your Bibles, I encourage you to box that or underline that. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. 
And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Now, the reason I have you underline or take note of the Lord being merciful to him is because he's being warned, he's being told, and the Lord will not, as he stated to Abraham, allow the righteous to be destroyed with the wicked. To the point that he grabs hold of Lot. These two angels seize him and pull him out because he is lingering in the midst of wickedness. For some reason is not fully grasping what is about to happen. The Lord is merciful to him in that. All fitting into the framework of his perfect justice. And Lot argues with the instruction to flee to the hills. And he says, we can't make it to the hills. You know, how about this small city? And as I'm reading this in my office this week, I'm, I'm in my head. I'm screaming at Lot. Get out! Stop fooling around. Get out. (laughs) It's like as if you're watching a really, really intense movie and you know destruction is coming and the character just can't seem to get the point. And you get out, get out now. Church family, I plead with you to recognize That the judgment of the Lord is coming. And there is only one way out. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no one who comes to the Father but through me. I plead with you to recognize the urgency of that truth. Not only in your own life but in the lives of everyone you love. Because we do not take this seriously. We are prone to linger, just like Lot. Look at verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Zor is the small town that Lot proposed that he go to. The Lord granted that favor to Lot. It says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now, in the midst of this, a question that we would be wise to ask is, what is the reason behind Lot's wife's judgment? The first simple answer is, if we look at chapter 19, verse 17, there was a specific command for them not to even look back. 
But we have to also look at the difference here between when Abraham looked upon the judgment of the Lord and when Lot's wife looked back. And the most simple understanding of this comes when we realize that there is a heart condition problem. A parallel directly to the danger of us as the church looking at life before Christ with any sense of fondness or longing. As Ephesians 2 would say, these were the things you once walked in, in the former pattern of your life, but no more. As Romans 6, 1 would say, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? There's a parallel here to our tendency to turn back to that which condemns us to destruction. And in a quote from Kent Hughes, he says, Her sorrow over her goods so fixated her that she could not or would not move. Perhaps she decided that she would be better dead then separated from her possessions. God's righteous justice far exceeds our fallen judgment. Now the truth of the matter is, church family, this is not one of those messages that we come out of when we go, whoo, it makes me feel so good. And there's a reason for that. And so as we think about how do we even begin to apply these truths to our life, how do we take a narrative like this and we see the utter destruction of sin and bring awareness and focus in our own lives? What do we do here? And I just want to give you three specific things. Number one, live in a healthy fear of the justice of God. In our world today, we often hear people wrestle with the reality of, well, I don't want to serve a God who is vengeful or wrathful. And so we get this this picture painted of God that is really, really not biblical. And it's God is just laid back. And he just loves everyone. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. God loves you. You just keep doing you. That's the message of culture. And if there are two things I heard listening to um, a couple of sermons this last week that are going through the book of James, separate in my own study, there's two things that are most prone to deceive us. One is that you are mostly good. And two, that everything's going to be okay. And it is for that reason that there are tens of thousands of people who gather in arenas and stadiums all over this country and hear preaching 
And they come back over and over again and yet continue to live in the world. It's because the, the world tells you that you are mostly good and that everything's going to be okay. And I cannot look at each one of you today and guarantee with full assurance that everything's going to be okay. Why? Because we serve a God who is not just laid back and welcome everyone. We serve a God who is perfectly just. And that justice doesn't just extend to the people who we think deserve punishment. It extends to every single wrong that's committed. Family, that includes you and me. If we long to serve a God who is perfectly just, it means that we deserve what is just. And if I look at the pattern of my life, can I really say that I deserve full pardon? No. The same is true when we look at other people and we go, man, God, where is your justice? In this, and I go, we see a piece, and God sees the whole. We see the outward appearance, God sees the heart of a city, a nation, and an individual person. We should live in a healthy fear of the justice of God. Because the same justice being perfectly true. The same standard is applied to me and you. The perfect justice of God is given additional weight in Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 4. You can jot this down. I'm just going to read it. It says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass. And like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. The second Application I want you to grab hold of here is pray fervently against the blinding of sin in your own life and others. We see here the people completely blinded to their own sin, so much so that even physical blindness couldn't make them see the error of their ways. We could go to James chapter 5, which actually speaks of Someone calling the elders of the church to come pray over them, confessing sin, in case that sin is actually causing them to be ill. Do we think that way? Do we actually stop to realize that I could be living in sin and it could be affecting my physical well-being? We don't. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May that be the prayer of our hearts, church family. Not elbowing the person next to you. Not looking over here 
in the words of Jesus, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own. Focus on what you should focus on. You are only responsible for you. And we cannot cast eternal judgment on any other person. We are to judge discerningly. Okay, the whole, this is a whole separate entity, but when people come to me and they say, uh, you're not, the scripture tells you not to judge. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Scripture tells you to judge and be discerning. What scripture tells you not to do is condemn people to hell because you can't do that. God is the only one who knows the heart. We're absolutely to make discerning judgments when we have conversations with people. Discerning and judgments about the type of friends we surround ourselves with. We're absolutely to do that. Pray fervently against the blinding of sin. Thirdly, recognize that none of us will escape the perfect justice of God. We are all guilty. And if I ended there, we would leave here in a really sad, sorrowful state. Because I just said, you're guilty and God's justice is coming. And what we just saw of God's justice is he destroys the wicked. And that is true throughout all of scripture. You can read through the Psalms. You can read through Jesus' teachings. Okay, Scripture is very clear. The wicked will be destroyed. That's great hope for those who are righteous. Not so much for those who remain in sin. So here's the good news. God has made a way in Christ. In a similar parallel in Exodus, we see God command the nation of Israel to spread blood over the doorposts of their houses when the angel of death comes through. And anyone who had blood spread over the doorposts of their house, the angel of death passed by and all were spared. The people who did not obey the command of the Lord experienced great death and mourning. Romans 8.1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church family, I plead with you once more to answer the question, are you in Christ Jesus? Is your life such That it reveals that you have been born again. And if there is even a fragment of a question mark. You need take this seriously. My greatest fear as your shepherd. Is that you would show up here and check a box. And you would know all the right things to say. And yet, when we stand before the judgment seat of God in Christ, that you would say, well, God, I did all these things. I came to church in your name. 
and I sought to work for your name. And I brought my kids to ministries in your name. I read the Bible in your name. And Jesus looked at us and said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you doers of lawlessness. We need take seriously the perfect justice of God. Because his righteous justice far exceeds our fallen judgment. May we be rooted in the hope that can only come through our Savior. And recognize there is nothing we can do to earn our way onto the right side of God. It is only through Christ. It is only through the power of Jesus. In the weightiness of this is where we do well to remember what Jesus did for us. That's why we're going to take communion together. So I'm going to ask the guys to come forward that I've asked to pass communion. And I'm going to need a couple other guys. So if there's a couple other guys, too, that would be willing to help with this, I'd appreciate it. Um, And what I want us to do as we sit with this truth and this reality is I want us to read out loud this text. This is in Malachi chapter 4. And it gives a warning (laughs) and a promise at the same time. And so I want to read this and then Our music teams, while they're passing the communion elements, they're actually going to share a song. I just want you to listen to the words of the song and reflect upon this reality and truly answer the question, are you in Christ? And if you're not in Christ, then this isn't for you because you haven't recognized what has been done for you in Jesus yet. And if that's you, if that's where you're at, I want you to come talk with me after service and I want, I want to share the hope and how we walk and live as followers of Jesus and what that looks like. And, and if that's where you're at, I, I want to bring you to a place that we can share this together. And if you're a student in here and you're not sure where you stand, don't, don't take this. I know it can be fun because it's like, woo, cracker and juice. Okay? That's not what this is for. This is meant to be very significant. And if we're not careful, we make it just another checkbox. God, I took communion in your name. So let's read these words together out loud corporately. And then I'm going to pray. We're going to pass these elements. And then we're going to take of this in recognition of what Christ has done on our behalf. Let's read this together. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant 
and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Father, may we be a people who have a healthy fear of you as a just God. And may that impact and transform how we walk faithfully in obedience to your commands. And God, as we come as those who are not worthy, who are not righteous, who don't deserve your grace, and we reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus, may we do so with humility and with repentance. It's through Jesus that we pray this because we cannot come to you apart from him. Amen.